I love that last song, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, and it's such a great reminder that it is by his mercy and by his grace that we stand. We have nothing to offer on our own. We don't come on our own merits. We didn't earn our way into the kingdom. And the gospel really works the opposite of everything else in life. If you go to your boss this week and say, I think I I need a raise, you should give me a raise. He says, well, make your case for the raise. Say, well, I know that you're a merciful and gracious, and you should just give me a raise. It doesn't work like that, does it? We do live in a sort of meritocracy where you get what you deserve for the most part. But then we come to the gospel and the gospel doesn't operate that way at all. God gives us mercy. Christ shares his mercy and grace with us, even though we are undeserving. What a great reminder for us this morning. We're in the gospel of Luke, Luke chapter two this morning. We'll be making our way from verses 39 down through 52, so we'll be finishing up chapter 2 today. As we get started, our title this morning is The Childhood of the God-Man. This will be a fun study. It's a passage that's probably familiar, and it's fairly easy to understand at least the facts of what's going on in the passage. It's the passage where Jesus goes to celebrate the Passover with his family. He's 12 years old. He stays at the temple. They don't know that he is still at the temple. They leave. They panic because they can't find Jesus. They go back and they find him and he's sitting with the teachers of the law and he's asking questions and learning and they're at the temple. And so the story is simple enough, but it's absolutely profound when we start to look under the hood of what's going on in this particular story and who was, in fact, the God-man. I don't know if you've ever lost someone in a crowd. Maybe you've left a kid somewhere. I posted on a social media outlet this week asking for stories of people that had left a kid at different places, and I got a lot of funny stories um, back. Some of them made public, some of them privately messaged to me. It's really every parent's worst nightmare, though, isn't it, that you're going to leave your kid somewhere? And we hear stories, and even tragically, these aren't funny stories at all, of people leaving their kid in a car sometimes. I saw one of these that uh, was posted and said, one helpful tip is to leave something important in the back seat um, so that you remember to get your kid. I'm like, I would qualify the kid as important, but... But I understand. I do understand. You put your something you need for work, your key card to get into the building, something like that that you have to forces you to look back there. I, I totally understand it, but it did strike me as funny. Last year when we had Dr. Moeller come and preach at our church, uh, the next day we were able to go, me and Dr. Moeller and um, a couple of friends uh, were able to take him uh, fishing, and it was, it was just a lot of fun. Well, we're coming back, and we stopped to grab some lunch in Fernandina, and we grab lunch, and we're walking back to the car, and I open the car door, and I hop in, and I look over, and Moeller's gone. I'm like, and I look down the street, and I'm looking up and down the block, and my immediate thought is, I'm going to be the guy that's remembered in church history for losing Moeller. Like, that's going to be, that's going to be my footnote on church history. Well, I look halfway down the block, and he spotted a bookstore. I should have known, Right? I should have known, and so we walked down to the bookstore and walked around for a little bit, and it was totally fine. A few of the stories that I got from you guys this week, I'll leave names out of this, but one family actually left their kid here um, after a Sunday service, and they realized it part of the way home, came back, kid never knew the difference, and all was well and good. I thought it maybe was like a Hannah and Samuel kind of thing, where they were just leaving him here to help out around here. I'm like, well, this will be fun once he gets to a helping age. 
I got a few stories of people leaving kids at gas stations, leaving them at relatives' houses. I did youth ministry for many years before coming here. We would do these big, long bus trips, and what we did, once you kind of got on your bus and you had your, your a buddy system, whatever van or car or bus you were in, you had to stay there, because once the pieces start moving, then it just gets impossible to track, and and so the first thing you did whenever you get on the bus is you take a head count. You, you go down, you just make sure everybody's there because parents just don't think it's cool when you leave their teenager in New Mexico at camp. They just, they just have no sense of humor about that sort of thing. So, and I totally understand it. Well, our story today has to do with Jesus getting left in Jerusalem. And it's really an extraordinary story. I've used this phrase a few times now and it just keeps popping up at least in how I'm viewing and understanding and reading the Gospel of Luke, what Luke continues to do is tell us the absolutely ordinary and yet extraordinary story of Jesus. It's extraordinary in just how ordinary it actually is. Now, if that was a little bit of a tongue twister and mind bender for you this morning, get ready because we're going to talk about all sorts of cool and awesome theology this morning. So make sure you got that coffee flowing. It's, there's amazing depth to what's going on here. And as I mentioned, the story's pretty easy to get, the facts. They just go to Jerusalem as they did every year. Verse 41 tells us this was their custom to go to Jerusalem for the Passover, as was required. And the problem is when they go to leave, Jesus isn't with them and they end up going back and they find him. So it's a simple story and yet it's an absolutely profound story. Now, why is this story so profound? The story is profound because Jesus is, in fact, the God-man. He is truly, fully God, and he's truly, fully man. And how you put those pieces together has been a conversation going on in church history for the last 2,000 years. And we'll interact a little bit with that conversation and how it's developed. So let me read our story for us, and then we'll come back and look a little bit closer. Verse 39. We'll start with verse 39. So chapter 2, 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let me just add a couple of footnotes here before we read the rest. They just completed the circumcision on the eighth day and were told that that was also according to the law of God. And so Luke is meticulous to tell us that Jesus is one who's born under the law and they're doing it all right. They're doing it as they were supposed to do it. And they had returned back to their home. And then the next verse, verse 41, it picks up, and this is 12 years later. And so we don't have a lot of information on exactly the story of Jesus and what things were like for him as a child. Now let's read this story. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey... But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. What an amazing passage that we have going on for us. So we have just these little windows into the childhood and then the teenage years are really just before the teenage years, the preteen years of Jesus. We are very curious and modern biographers especially, we tend to have a curiosity about the younger lives and younger years of different people throughout church history. I have an interest in some biographies, but I'll be honest, I'm not like a huge biography reader like some of you guys maybe are. And part of it is because I do think we tend to get lost and caught up in the minutia of a particular person's life. Let me tell you about Winston Churchill, and here's what he had for breakfast when he was nine on April the 4th. Doesn't matter to me. I just, you might groove out on that. I don't. But I think historians today, we just tend to have such an interest in the early lives. And this doesn't satisfy all of that curiosity if you have that curiosity. But I think it's important at that point to remember the Bible wasn't written strictly to satisfy your intellectual curiosity. That's not why it was written. Why was it written? It was written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so, what we have to do then is trust that we know enough, we know what God wants us to know, and we know enough to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so, we come to the text, not with a sense of distress or angst for what it doesn't tell us, but we come to the text for what it is, because this is God's Word, and this is what He wants us to know. So, I make that adjustment in your mind, if that is a lingering question and thought. What does God want us to know? And whenever we come to a passage of Scripture, we have to ask the question, what is intended? What does the author want us to know? What does the Lord want us to understand from this particular section of Scripture? And as we come to this one, I think part of what at least is going on is Luke wants us to understand that Jesus is a full, truly human being. This is significant for us because immediately, We want to talk about Jesus being truly God, and we do believe that. So here's where your thinking caps are going to need to come out. If you've had them sleepy here on a Sunday morning, pull out the thinking caps, and let's consider for a moment the Trinity. We believe in the Trinity, and this is the classic shield of the Trinity, recognizing that God is, in fact, three distinct persons. So Here's what we see. The Father is not the Son, if you're following along the top line. The Son, going down the triangle, is not the Spirit. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, is not the Father. But yet, go back to the middle of the triangle, God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Spirit. Everybody got that? Trinity and unity, unity and trinity. It's how it works. So let's drill down a little bit more specifically on the sun. That's what we'll be doing today. A couple of historic, whenever you start 
talking about the Trinity. I have joked before, I teach worldview classes, and whenever we start talking about the Trinity and people will try to come up with some perfect illustration of the Trinity, I hear more heresy amongst 14, 15 year olds when we get to the Trinity part, and they don't mean to, I I recognize that, but it's very difficult and there's no perfect illustration that fully captures what's going on here. So a couple of confessions and historic confessions that I think are very helpful. If, if this piques an interest with you, I would recommend you go back, read the Chalcedon formula from 451. It's widely available online. One of the early church councils that helped to nail this down about who was Jesus Christ and the Trinity. Our statement of faith, the EFCA statement of faith, I want to just read this for you and share it with you. It says, we believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all right? So that is what we confess and believe as a church family. Drilling down a little bit more specifically on the person of Christ, which is where we're going to spend a little bit of time today. We believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. I'll speak of the incarnation. It's the act of Jesus taking on human flesh, fully God and fully man, one person in two natures. Now, this is where things start to get a little bit sticky. One person in two natures, all right? Very important, very important for us to understand this. So let's see the childhood of the God-man. One, we see that Jesus develops in wisdom. Now, I want to read verse 40 for you again and then jump down and read verse 52 for us again. We're gonna take these together because Luke brackets this section about Jesus and the temple incident. He brackets it around telling us about the growth of Jesus, which is interesting. Verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Then we have the temple story, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We have a tendency to emphasize the deity, the godness of Jesus Christ, and I think this is rightly so, because it is the dividing line between what Christians confess, and maybe what some other cults would confess, such as Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, they would confess that Jesus is not truly, fully God. And so we draw a line there, and we tend to emphasize that. But what I want to do is pull our minds equally this morning and in subsequent weeks to the humanity of Christ. Jesus lived life as a true and full human being. True and full human being. So the question that I want to interact with, just let this one roll around your mind for a minute. How is it that Jesus was fully God and yet he grew in wisdom? All right, you got that? Anybody want to answer? No, I won't do that. That would be scary. We might get some great answers, I don't know. How is it that Jesus was both fully God and yet... At the same time, he grew in wisdom. Because maybe, if you're like me, on the surface, those things might seem to invalidate one another. If he's truly God, well, that implies that he knew everything, right? 
And so if he knew everything, how could he possibly grow in wisdom? You see the dilemma? And this is the question that people have been wrestling with for years and years and years. So I think we're, I found some helpful resources here, I think, to help us unsort this. The key to this whole conversation is understanding that Jesus did possess two natures, divine and human, and he lived his life as a true human being. I want to read a couple of quotes from Dr. Stephen Wellam. He's a professor up at Southern Seminary, and his book on this is so helpful. I should send him a Christmas card, and that would be appropriate given that it's about Christ, and I found his book on Christ helpful, but I did find it extremely useful. He says this, The New Testament tells us that as Jesus grew into an adult, he learned to think better than he did as a child. All right, simple statement of fact based on Luke 2. He increased in wisdom and in stature. The Gospels do present Jesus with extraordinary knowledge. People are amazed at his understanding, even at 12 years old. So he has extraordinary knowledge, but that's not to be confused with omniscient. He says... To see that an increase in his human wisdom and knowledge works together with supernatural knowledge to present Jesus with a human mind, we must distinguish between supernatural knowledge and infinite knowledge, okay? So what are we saying? We're saying that at times it is true that Jesus seems to have knowledge that's not normal, supernatural, reading the hearts of people. But how did he get that knowledge? The argument is that he received that knowledge because he lived in perfect union with the Father and the Spirit, okay? It's addition, not subtraction. He was always truly, only, fully God, but he took on human flesh. In the next section, we see that Jesus is asking the teachers questions, and he's amazing them with his own knowledge, But it's not like Jesus immediately had all knowledge available to him, it doesn't seem. He didn't live life with a cheat code, it doesn't seem. Some of my generation, you know what I'm talking about, playing video games and you had these little codes that you could put in the video game to make yourself invincible and call it a cheat code. And you could make your little guy run around and nothing could hurt you and it's kind of taking the game out of the game. You just run around and do whatever you wanna do. And I don't think that's how Jesus lived his life. It's not how he lived his life. He develops, he learns. He's a true, full human. Another text, it's helpful on this. Hebrews 5 and verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus is learning, he's growing. There are times, as we'll see, in later in the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus doesn't seem to know particular things. In Mark 13, they ask him, he says, I don't know the day or the time of the return of the Son of Man. I don't think that's completely rhetorical. I think he's living his life as a true, full human in his human nature. So how do we make sense of this? J.I. Packard to the rescue. This is helpful. Just as Jesus did not do all that he could have done because certain things were not his father's will. So his argument is he didn't do everything he could have done. This is the passage where Jesus says, I could call down legions of angels at his arrest and crucifixion. I could call down legions of angels, but that's not the plan. 
So I'm going to allow this to happen. So he had ability that he chose not to exercise. And Packer says, in the same way, he also had knowledge that because it wasn't the will of the Father, he chose not to exercise. So he did not consciously know all that he might have known, but only what the Father willed him to know. His knowing, like the rest of his activity, was bounded by the Father's will. So we have the two natures of Christ, and he lives in submission fully as a true human, growing understanding. What we see in the next section is his wisdom is displayed. And what we see is that Jesus was an avid learner. And what I want you to think about, what if you had a kid that had zero effects of the fall, no sin nature. That was Jesus, learning, growing in wisdom, perfect communion with his heavenly father, with the spirit. That's how Jesus lived. And so you can see what I'm trying to do, and I think what Luke is trying to get us to see is to accent the full, absolute humanity of Jesus. Of course, it's not to the exclusion of his deity, as we'll see later, but he is, in fact, truly, fully God and man at the same time. All right, we got that sorted out. Any questions? We'll move along. So we have, he's developing in wisdom, he's learning, he's growing. Now we see his wisdom is displayed. It says his parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. So this is an annual ritual. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. So three times a year, the Israelites were required to go to Jerusalem. This is from Deuteronomy 16, 16. It's mentioned a couple of other places as well. Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord, your God, at the place that he will choose. Now, this is written before they go into the land. And so they don't have the, the temple established yet because they haven't gone into the land. And so it's the place he will choose, which of course ends up being Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the temple. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that's number one, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths. Now, if you're an astute reader, you might've noticed that it says that he went for the Feast of Passover. But this says you're required to go to the feast. Uh, the, the first one is the unleavened bread. How do you make sense of that? Well, they're actually the same event. Uh, the Passover kicked off the feast of unleavened bread. And so it became common to just refer to it as the Passover. We do this in a not quite the same thing because our holidays are not exactly Jewish festivals and feasts, but we talk about this. I'm going over to my parents' house for Christmas. Well, that could refer to Christmas Day. It could also refer to a season, correct? So we kind of use the terms in a similar sort of way. So the Passover began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then the other two were the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths. So three times a year, they made this journey. So that's, that's where they are, and that's what's going on. Jesus is 12 years old, verse 42 says, this was considered the age of discernment. You're able to now start thinking through things for yourself. And then at 13, you're considered as one who should be keeping the law yourself. You're considered an adult. Now, I think most 13-year-olds amongst us would probably not be in favor of changing systems. We now 18 is considered you're an adult in our country. It was 13. 
So verse, thir- uh, verse 43, and when the feast was ended and they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. So they probably had a huge caravan of people that were traveling from Nazareth over to Jerusalem. And you guys that come from bigger families, you can sort of grab on to what's going on here. It's just a big party. They're just, they're just moving together and they're, they're going to take the walk back home. There were, there's five siblings in my family Uh, five siblings and now we're all married and we all have kids so when we all get together it's it's somewhere around 30 people ish in the house when we get together absolute total mayhem and chaos and the kids love it and they're running around and I'm usually taking a lot of walks outside just to clear my mind we load up to go somewhere, and my favorite is my mom. She has these cameras everywhere that are always dinging her, like, hey, somebody's outside. She's like, who's that? Somebody's outside. I'm like, mom, there's 30 people here. Like, could be anybody. Like, I don't know. 30 people, and we don't know how many dogs are here. So we don't really know exactly what is going on out there. So it's, it's chaos. But if we all load up and go to somewhere, go, go to a restaurant, go to a relative's house or something like that, there's kids strewn across vehicles, and you guys have all been there. They jump in the car with the cousins over here, and they're jumping over here, and, and you just kind of get there, and you reassess. Like, did we get them all? Like, do we know them all that are here? Like, are the, do the numbers match, and are they the same humans? Like, we're, and so you, you can kind of understand. There's this sort of thick sense of community, and they're just traveling together, and they would do this a few times a year. I'm sure it was a I'm sure the cousins, the kids, they probably loved it. It's, it's just this big time where you get to see relatives and friends and acquaintances, and you make this journey, and you go back and forth. And so you could see how this, something like this could happen. They're just all headed out, and Jesus doesn't go, though. Jesus stays back behind. Very interesting. Verse 45, and so it goes on a little while, and I'm sure... We always want to be careful. We don't want to read into the white space of what's going on here, but you can sort of spot the conversation behind the scenes between Joseph and Mary. Hey, where's Jesus? I haven't seen him for a minute. Um, I don't know. I thought he was with you. No, he wasn't with you. Is he with you? And so they start asking around, and there's this sort of mild concern at first, like, hey, we should probably get our eyes on him. And then that quickly transitions to full-blown panic. And I think all parents have probably been there at some point. All right, we really can't find him. This is bad. And so they turn around and they head back. So they're a day's journey away. Turn around, come back, day two, and then day three. They find him, verse 45. They didn't find him. They returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Verse 46. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, again, I want to emphasize here the full humanity of Jesus and not at all to take away from his deity, but I think this is important to understand and see. He is a boy 
and he's unaffected by the fall, does not have a sin nature, and he is learning. He's putting himself in a position to learn from the teachers of the law, showing, one, he has a a profound sense of his own mission, what he's there on planet Earth to do, and he also has a profound sense of humility to sit and learn as the Messiah from these teachers. I love that it says that he sat and he was asking them questions and they were amazed at his responses. He's asking questions. I don't want to overapply this text, but one of the little things that we did as parents is we tried to always tell our kids, help our kids, don't tell adults what to do, ask adults questions. It just helps remember your place in the world, asking questions. And so we see Jesus is putting himself in this position to be a learner. Absolutely startling. Again, his knowledge is limited in his human nature. He is acting as a full and true human. Well, Mary isn't nearly as impressed with this whole situation as we probably are. Verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. It's sort of a non-committal phrase. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus, what what are you doing? He gets the classic mom talk. What what are you doing? Where have you been? Why have you done this? Now, I can't imagine what it's like to be Mary at this point. She received this revelation from Gabriel. She's received the prophecy from Simeon, but it's been years. It's been 12 years or so since those things. There's no record of any prophecy or any special revelation given to her in this time period, but she's sitting with that knowing that my child is going to do something special and significant. He is, in fact, the Messiah. She knew that, and yet here she is, just like any normal mom, and she's panicked because she's lost her child. It just reminds us of the human nature of what's going on. He lived a normal human experience, And the implication of that is that he can sympathize with your weakness and normal human experience too. He experienced the full range. Even a mom who's a little bit disappointed in him because he stayed behind. Verse 49. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? There's a disconnect between Jesus and his parents. In fact, verse 50 says they didn't understand What he was saying, we don't get it, Jesus. What are you doing? Such a small window into a world, and I will admit, as I did earlier, that I wish I knew a little bit more about the life and early days of Jesus. This is a footnote and a preference, but this is one of the reasons I'm not a huge fan of historical fiction, particularly about the life of Jesus Christ. Because I think it's too powerful. And we start to mix in our minds what the Bible actually says and some author's version of what could have happened. I'm not a big fan of those things because I think the intermixing can happen so subtly that you begin to be unable to separate what actually is in the Bible versus what happened in some story that an author made up. And I think a lot of them are well-intentioned, and I understand that, but... For me, my preference, I just want to see what the Bible actually says and not confuse that with another source. 
So we have just this little small window into what's going on here in the life of Jesus. Now here's maybe, to me, the most amazing part of this whole story. Look at verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Jesus was submissive to his own parents. That is an amazing reality, isn't it? He develops godly wisdom, character, and virtue in his human nature. He displays this by wowing the teachers of the law at the time with his questions and responses as they're taking apart what would have been to them, of course, the Old Testament as we understand it today, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And then he expresses an understanding of his human nature and of his place in the world. He was submissive to them. We talked about this, actually. Adam led us in our equipping hour this morning. We were looking at Ephesians, where it's the submission, submission passages, where it, it's what's sometimes referred to as the household codes, where Paul is instructing on a father and a mother and the husband and the wife and the nature of those relationships and children and their relationship to their parents. And this word submission is the same word that's used. You're to submit to the authorities that are placed over you. This is important. It's very important, and it's especially important if you are an Old Testament Jewish reader at this point, because there were stiff penalties if you did not obey your parents. It was a massive deal. In fact, capital offense. Now, I would not want to apply that in our culture and world today. I think most of us would admit that we wouldn't be around to apply that today. Capital offense for being disobedient. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 20, you can read about that. It's mentioned other places as well. Exodus 20, verse 12, part of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Jesus is a man, he's born under the law, as Galatians 4 tells us, and he was submissive to, perfectly to, the law of God, what sometimes is referred to as the active obedience of Jesus Christ. He actively obeyed the law of God. It's an amazing passage. It, of course, does not imply any sort of inferiority to submit to an appropriate authority, doesn't imply inferiority, What it shows is that there's a certain structure and authority that the Lord has ordained his world to run by. And Jesus submits himself completely and fully to that amazing passage. So let's try to put a bow around this and summarize a few things. One, we need to understand that Jesus experienced full humanity. He experienced full humanity. I've mentioned this as we've walked through Luke a couple of times, but this is important Jesus experienced full humanity. He lived as a man. And as Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, they both make clear that he felt temptation. He felt the weight. He felt the pull. And so now he can be a merciful high priest for you when you sin. We read Psalm 51 this morning. It's the passage where David is repenting of his sin. Jesus can identify with us in our weakness. He experienced full humanity. Number two, Jesus submits to both earthly authority and his heavenly father. Jesus understood authority structure, and he actually submits to his parents. 
We don't, again, want to speculate too much here, but Jesus could have simply said, you know, this is actually a lot more important, Mom. I'm, I'm doing a better thing here. You don't understand what I'm up to, obviously, so you just need to chill and let me do my thing here. Could have easily gone that direction. And it would have been wrong. <laughs> he wouldn't have been wrong. But he willingly puts himself under the authority structure that the Lord had for him in his humanity in that family relationship. Pretty amazing model for us, isn't it? Everybody's under authority. Nobody's completely independent. And then thirdly, Jesus' priorities are clear from the beginning. He is all about the mission that he's on. He's all about his father's business and the word. We'll see that expressed much, much more so later as we walk through the Gospel of Luke. So I wanted to leave you with this. Maybe some of this was a little bit, I understand, especially in the first part, we're talking about natures and persons and God and Trinity and unity. I know some of that is maybe a little bit heady and I, it's, uh, it's important infrastructure, all right? The theology sometimes that we talk about is sort of like rebar. You don't, everybody doesn't need to see it all the time, but you kind of need it for support to make sure the concrete stays together and make sure the building stands. So we're just kind of, peeling back the veil a little bit and showing you some of that, how this all works and fits together. I understand it's not everybody's hobby horse to dive deep into some of these things, and I appreciate that and understand that, but it needs to be there. You need to have some working knowledge of how these things work. So what is the essentials? What do we need to understand about the story of Jesus? We could really summarize it in four points. Number one, the incarnation It's simply this, that Jesus came to earth and he took on human flesh. He experienced full and true humanity for you, and he can sympathize now with your weakness. Number two, we see the crucifixion event. And the crucifixion was not for his own sin. Jesus did not have to die. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus didn't die for his own sin. He died for your sin. He died for my sin so that we can be forgiven. This is the whole point. It's the whole point, showing why he's the perfect sacrifice, the one that kept the law, the one born under the law. Next, we have the resurrection. Of course, death did not hold him. The resurrection. If death had kept Christ, it would have shown us that it was for his own sin that he died. But death could not hold him because he was the sinless one. The resurrection. You must believe that Jesus has defeated death. That's part of what it means to be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Resurrection. If you subtract out the resurrection, you're left with no gospel. There is no gospel without the resurrection. And then glorification or the event that leads to his glorification is the ascension of Christ. And it just reminds us that Jesus is now enthroned in heaven. These are the four points of Jesus' ministry. This is what we need to understand and know. Jesus, fully God, truly man. He died for our sins, a substitutionary death. He defeated death through the resurrection. Now he sits at the right hand of the Father, living to make intercession for us, a sympathetic high priest who knows exactly what you're going through. It's an amazing, amazing reality to understand. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the reality of Christ. And as we consider something that's maybe a little bit different 
and a little bit more theological even this morning, considering how it is that Jesus was, in fact, the perfect, true God-man. He experienced life as a man with dependence, perfect dependence on you, the Heavenly Father, the whole time. Lord, so now we come and we recognize that we can call out to our sympathetic high priest. Lord, for some in here today, maybe they need to do that for the first time. They need to recognize that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, and they are, in fact, sinners, and he paid the penalty for sins. Lord, for others who maybe are struggling with sin, maybe they've found themselves defeated again and again and again by some particular sin, or maybe just a host of sins, or maybe just a general mindset of godlessness towards you, Lord, I pray that they would find sympathy in the great high priest today and understand that you are the sympathetic high priest who understands what we're going through. So Lord, give us that rest and assurance, we pray in Christ's name, amen.